Welcome to Safa Security Chat Chat, episode 114 for August the 13th, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest is Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. You have been traveling the world, have you not? I have been. I've been very busy. In fact, uh, this is my second evening home since the summer season has begun here in the Northern Hemisphere, but uh, it is good to be back. And you are spending it doing a Sophos security chat chat. <laughs> I am, and uh, we've, we've got a, a pretty interesting agenda. While there's not lots of items here, I think there's lots of things to say. And, you know, I, I was traveling back and reading a lot, a lot of the naked security stories I hadn't been able to stay on top of. And immediately one came uh, that drove, grabbed my attention was, was the concept that people are storing uh, Bitcoin wallets on their mobile phones. and and at first I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to kind of maybe explain a little bit about Bitcoins and cryptography, because I don't think people really understand necessarily what a Bitcoin is. And it's a, it's a lot more like real currency than perhaps we, we really think about in that. Uh, oh, no, don't say that, Chester. That's almost heretical to say that it's not like regular currency at all, because there is no central regulation and there's no minting of anything physical to represent the currency. Um, it's just a series of bit strings that have been calculated according to an algorithm with a particular complexity, and people agree that they will trade these bit strings in return for whatever it is they wish to barter with. So it's an attempt to have a, a currency that can't be regulated because it's just about some digital stuff that you make. Of course, the nice thing about digital stuff easy to store. The bad thing about digital stuff, easy to lose, which means that those bit strings that you're keeping that represent this currency need to be kept in some kind of a digital wallet. And if you're going to be exchanging them with other people, you imagine that needs some kind of public key cryptography. And the Android app has had a terrible blunder due to a flaw, apparently, in the Java-based pseudo-random number generator in Android. Now, we've seen issues with pseudo-random number generation in the past, right? I mean, there was a, a problem with some Debian SSH keys a few years ago. and then... My goodness, there was a problem. 31 bits of entropy. Right, and even more recently, we saw a situation with uh, these embedded routers, a lot of these uh, uh, um, you know, Wi-Fi access points and these types of things having either identical keys or very guessable keys for similar reasons, right? Yes, they're using a pseudo-random number generator. Uh, it has to start somewhere. That's called the seed. So you need something that is as close to hardware random as you can get to seed your pseudo-random number generator. Otherwise, you're going to get the same sequence every time you use it. Now, in some cases, that can be good if you're doing some kind of a simulation and you want to know that you can repeat the previous run for testing purposes, for example, then having a seed that you repeat is good. But for cryptographic purposes, it's absolutely terrible. And this is what has happened in these, the case of these Android-based Bitcoin wallets. Speaking of fixing vulnerabilities and, and flaws in software, uh, a very popular open-source ad platform called OpenX, uh, which does have a a commercial version as well called OpenX, uh, was the, the open version of OpenX, boy, this is getting confusing, it was, was compromised by some malware, had some sort of a backdoor uh, in, its, in its package that was distributed on many Linux platforms. 
Of course, OpenX, for those listeners who have been interested in web-born malware for a couple of years, will know regularly comes up in malware-related stories. And there are two reasons for that. When you're self-hosting a server, it's easy to fall behind with patches. We've seen it with blogging platforms as well. So that means that it's easy to have a server that is a little bit too open for the crooks. But the other point is that ad servers are sadly a fantastic vehicle for the criminals because it's a way of putting content that you didn't originate, so you can never be quite sure what it's going to be anyway because you're serving it up for somebody else, and distributing it widely, injecting it as an iframe or an image or whatever into possibly millions of sites around the world. Um, So actually, ad platforms have always been popular. Ad-serving platforms have always been popular with the crooks. And it seems that the crooks must have got tired of having to find vulnerabilities in OpenX and then break in or find people who hadn't patched. And they decided to cut to the chase and they infected the official distro in advance. So you actually, you got the infection by installing the product in the first place. Yeah, this raises a lot of issues concerning uh, process, though, in my mind. I'm I'm not sure that I would have a lot of trust in in OpenX any longer, simply because if a package that you're supposedly generating for distribution, it seems like the type of thing that you would be very carefully auditing what went into that package when you built it and ensuring that it's been cryptographically hashed so that you know if it was modified, would you not? Yes. One thing that hasn't come out in the story, or if it has, I'm not aware of it, is exactly how this thing got in there in the first place. To be fair, it's kind of subtle. The file that I looked at is some kind of video plugin, an add-on, in in a zip inside the distro zip. And it's a JavaScript file. And the JavaScript files in OpenX are kind of minified or, or compressed anyway, so they don't really read very well. They're just all squashed up. And mixed in with the JavaScript is some PHP. Um, And mixed in with the PHP in the JavaScript are some fake JavaScript comments. So it kind of blends in reasonably okay if you're just doing a visual audit of the code, which is not meant to be human readable anyway. But of course, the JavaScript that then gets fed back uh, has the PHP removed by the PHP engine on the server side. So visitors don't see anything wrong. And that means it can be quite hard to track this kind of thing down, which is another reason why ad servers are really popular with the crooks. Because it means that it's unreliable to go and get a sample of what's going on because ads change over time, they vary by geographic location, they vary by whether you're visiting the first time or the second time. So that by the time somebody reports that an ad server has dished up bad stuff to them, when a researcher goes in, malware researcher goes in to try and investigate, they're probably going to see something completely different. Uh, yeah, server-side things can be very tricky to track down, uh, especially since so few Linux servers have any kind of uh, scanner or even protection on them. I mean, what does this say for server-side security? I mean, is, is, there, is there ways that administrators can more easily avoid becoming uh, victims of this type of an attack? There's a kind of a catch-22 in the OpenX example, namely that the current advice from OpenX is don't lag behind on your patches. And that, in the past, has been the reason why the crooks have been able to steam in, because people have been out of date. But of course, the version they've just released replaced 2.8.10, which came out at the end of last year. If you'd been sloppy and you hadn't upgraded to 2.8.10, 
and you'd stuck with 2.8.9, you would probably have been better off. So unfortunately, that advice about take the latest version, this time, it's really, really important. Last time, it would have been advice that had you ignored, you would actually have inadvertently done yourself a favor. Uh, the last big topic I wanted to chat about is uh, related to much of the reaction to the NSA spying in the United States, and uh, a lot of people are paying much closer attention to how they may securely communicate, and folks were using some American-based email providers that uh, had provided uh, alleged secure email facilities that are have decided to cease operations. I don't want to speak specifically to what these organizations were doing or how secure they were, but I did want to talk about email security a little more broadly just for a minute in the podcast because a lot of journalists and individuals have been interested in how to secure their communications and asking a lot more questions than they were about the security of their messaging. And, you know, I I liken it a lot to the physical mail, right? Uh, If I were to write you a letter, Paul, once I've put that in an envelope and dropped it in the post box, I don't really know what's going to happen to it. Um, I have an expectation that it'll be delivered to you uh, at the address that you provided me to, to have that mail delivered. But anything else that might happen to that envelope is kind of, you know, up for grabs. It is, Chester, and it gets even worse, of course, because let's say that snail mail envelope arrives and I look at it and I kind of satisfy myself so far as I can that it hasn't been steamed open, that it was just delivered in a fair and trustworthy fashion by the postal company. I still don't know what happened to it before it got in that envelope. You could have given it to your buddy, uh, unsealed, and said, hey, can you take this down to the post office, buy me an envelope and post it to Duck? And I wouldn't know about that first bit by the time it reached me. So that's another problem with email is that even if that last step when you retrieve it uses HTTPS if it's webmail, TLS if it's SMTP, all the hops before, who knows who could have been looking at it. Right, which is part of the importance of cryptographic signatures in addition to actually encrypting things, right? If if I'm simply concerned with authenticating that I wrote the message and the message hasn't been tampered with, um, digitally signing that message gives you the opportunity to Uh, know that it hasn't been modified, but not necessarily know whether someone else uh, was able to read the message. And then encrypting the mail, of course, provides both of those protections and ensures that the original message has not been modified, and it's only accessible to someone possessing the private key that I've addressed that message to. And and there's different ways of doing that, but I think it's really important for folks to think about um, that very problem when they're talking about instant messaging, when they're talking about email, or any kind of communication mechanism online. If you uh, cannot protect the message itself before it's dropped into the delivery mechanism, then in all likelihood, the people controlling that delivery mechanism may disclose and or intercept those messages, and you would not really have any way of knowing whether that happened or not. So if you really want uh, to securely communicate, make sure that you trust no one and that you take the action to protect the message before dropping it into the digital post box, as it were. Absolutely. And there's an excellent historical story to tell about that. Back in the 16th century, um, Mary was trying to do away or had a plot to get rid of Queen Elizabeth, uh, the first that is. And uh, she hatched this plan with a bloke called Babington. And they had this cipher that they used. It wasn't very strong and it got cracked. 
and that meant that they knew that this plot was afoot so they could foil it and protect the monarch's life. Unfortunately, because they now knew how the cipher worked but there was no authentication on it, they were actually able to inject stuff where they asked this Babington fellow some questions and he replied in cipher, which pretty much got him hanged, drawn and quartered because it wasn't just that there was a plot afoot, they'd actually stitched him up that he was actively involved because he must have read the message that they produced. Now, at, at Black Hat, we had a, a pretty cool contest running, which uh, you could win a 3D printer. And I thought perhaps you could share with us uh, anybody who wants to be mentioned that, that was able to solve the puzzle and congratulate our contest winners. Chester, there's actually quite a lengthy list. There were 20 people who solved stage one, which was a crossword, and then 13 people who finished the full puzzle, which was actually had four stages. So we decided to go more complex than the previous one. Um, so I'm not going to list them all. If you want to find out who won, and more importantly, if you want to go through it step by step to learn about how you actually dig into problems of this sort, uh, there's a real-world connection with malware research if you're in cryptography, um, then head to Naked Security, and we've got a How to Solve the Black Hat 2013 Sophos Puzzle article on there. Thanks for that, Paul. I think it was a pretty interesting puzzle. I had a, a lot of fun chatting with... Uh, people making attempts at it at, at Black Hat. So it was, it was fun to meet everyone. And that concludes Software Security Chat Chat 114. As always, uh, our latest podcasts are all available at podcasts.sophos.com via RSS or on iTunes. For the latest news, as Paul mentioned, you can get all of that stuff over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And until next time, stay secure.